Well, the boxers, I want to say happy new year. And it's been a little while since we spoke and to the people who sent notes asking about when the next episode was going to be, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it because that means you care. And the fact that there's some people who care helps us care. And to know that there is a growing constituency for democracy itself, there's a growing desire to figure out how we can do this better. There's also a desire to figure out how we can do the show better. And so we're working on that all the time. And your feedback is also appreciated. Your guest suggestions are appreciated. This coming episode is with somebody we're really excited to talk about. Uh, Rick Hassan has been running the election law blog. He is uh, one of the leaders of any of this stuff. If you're going to put together, I don't know, probably have more people than a Mount Rushmore, but a but some sort of hall of fame of, of democracy nerds, he'd be one of them. There is, I want to warn you, and it, it, we have a great discussion about what's happening with, uh, with media, his new book, a little bit about his work uh, and, and what spawned it. I want to give a little warning. There's a little bit of uh, technical challenge, but I don't want to throw our technical people under the bus. It wasn't on our end. Our sound stuff's working great. He had his, microphone flipped off when we started. And so you could still hear him over the kind of backup recording. Uh, but then about midway through, uh, he corrected it. And so the second half, second two thirds, uh, latter two thirds is better. Uh, so if you can get through the not quite as good audio on his end the beginning, it gets even better towards the end. But most of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much. I want to say Thank you to Siegfried. Thanks most of all to Kyle Curtis, our producer, and and thank you to all of you. We're looking forward to this year and looking forward to a better democracy. Stay tuned for this episode. Rick Hassan is the director of law at Public Science at UCLA Law School. He's also the director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project. He also oversees the election law blog. Pretty much now a requirement for democracy nerds. I know a lot of our community enjoys it. It's a good thing to have bookmarked. You can check it out at electionlawblog.org. He joins us today to talk about his book, Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. This is Jefferson Smith. Welcome to the first episode of Democracy Nerd in 2023. Happy New Year to all the Democracy Nerds listening. Our guest today is a prime Democracy Nerd, a hero among the Democracy Nerdverse. That is a term of endearment here. We'll have a chance to talk about his book. Professor Hassan joins us now. Professor, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you. Here we get to the book. Uh, Let's talk about the Safeguarding Democracy Project just by way of introduction. What I know is it promotes research, collaboration, and advocacy, I believe, aimed at free and fair elections. What's the origin? How did you sign on to it? How did it get started? What are the key things you're proud of? Well, it's so great to be with you, and thanks for the opportunity. Um, back in uh Period before the 2020 election, it was clear to me that we were having some pretty serious problems with how our democracy was functioning. This was even before COVID. And uh, a lot of it stemmed from Donald Trump's continual disparagement of the election system, which was already causing people to have doubts about the, the fairness of the election and, and his unwillingness to state that he would accept the results of either the 2016 election or, or any other election. And so I convened a conference when I was still at UC Irvine uh, called Can American Democracy Survive the 2020 Elections? We had this conference, a group of us met afterwards, created an ad hoc committee to come up with recommendations. And it was the last thing that took place on the UCI campus in person before COVID hit. And over the next few months, uh, via Zoom and, and uh, email, uh, we came up with a set of recommendations uh, and issued a report in April of 2020 called Fair Elections During a Crisis. You can Google that name and you can look at the report. We had recommendations in law, media, politics, and tech. Those recommendations got some traction and it occurred to me that we really needed a more permanent structure to be dealing with the new threats of election subversion and challenges to free and fair elections in the United States. And 
when I moved over to UCLA this past summer, uh, I started the Safeguarding Democracy Project to do that and put together a, a very diverse board, diverse in every way um, that you can think of to try to bring together people who ordinarily might not agree on policy, but agree on the need to continue to have free and fair elections in the United States. Was it, do you remember a moment? Was there an epiphany? Was there a realization? Was there a time your spidey sense was most peaked either in 2020 or 2015 or some year prior when you realized democracy itself needs to not be taken for granted? And in fact, they're meaningful threats. Do you, any salient memory or was it more of a sort of a gradual sense that grew? Well, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call it gradual because I think that the Trump era marked a, a, a very distinct change. Uh, but back in January 2009, I wrote a blog post. I was just writing about this for some, something uh, that I'm working on. Uh, I wrote a blog post talking about how uh, in the United States, we take peaceful transitions of power for granted. And, we, you know, we had George W. Bush, a conservative Republican, um, having coffee with uh, Barack Obama, liberal Democrat, and, and their spouses driving over together to the Capitol for the swearing in and President Obama seeing off President Bush as he got into um, Marine One and jetted off to his his uh, his Texas home. And I thought, you know, this is a moment we really need to recognize because it takes a lot for this to happen. And, you know, that people in the field understood what I meant, but I, I don't think most Americans focused on it. They just assumed, you know, you go to the polling place. Whoever's announced the winner is the winner, and then politics changes, but the democracy itself is not threatened. And, and of course, when uh, Trump came in, the very first uh, caucus that he ran in, the Iowa caucus, he claimed that Ted Cruz stole that uh, caucus and, and when, when he lost. And it was clear to me we were in for a bumpy ride. But, but I think the single most frightening moment for me before January 6th itself was the tweet that Donald Trump sent out in December, inviting people for wild protests uh, at the Capitol. Uh, and th that to me signaled that, you know, everybody was like, oh, you know, the election's over, the electoral college uh, uh, members have met in each state and, and there's nothing else for Trump to do. That, that, that tweet told me that we weren't done. For years when some of us, myself included, would be advocating for particular process bills, right? Things about campaign finance, things about reforms for voting mechanisms. They'd be sort of relegated to a Google category, a good government category. They'd be, well, voters don't care about that. They say they want to, they're worried about their health care, they're worried about their environment. Uh, they're worried about their uh, pocketbook. Only nerds care about democracy itself. And I both agree and disagree with that sentiment. It, however, has seemed to me in the, whether we say it since, you know, 2020 or 2016, or you, you name when, that there is a growing awareness that this assumption that our system of decision-making will, and, and I don't mean the precise one that we have, but our basic commitment to some semblance of a republic, some semblance of a democracy, that is just going to happen. We just take it for granted. The process is going to work. It seems to me that that assumption is not only been challenged January 6th, but is generally more challenged. There's more people that are prioritizing democracy itself as a, a key issue. But I, I could be projecting that could be wishful or scary thinking, scared thinking from me. I wonder if it's been a banner year for the election law blog, at least in 2022. I wonder if you saw a traffic spike. I wonder if you as you kind of read the landscape, if you see more people prioritizing our system of governance itself, or it's still just, you know, the nerds. Well, you know, I I don't think that it's that the general public thinks that democracy is unimportant. I think it's that the general public thinks that democracy is on autopilot. And what 2020 taught a lot of people is that it's not, and that it takes work. And so this work um, requires what I consider to be a kind of cross-partisan coalition of people, but it, it can't just be people on the left who are worried about democracy or people on the right, it has to be all of us. Uh, and so 2022 was really such an important year because you've had 
so many people running for office as election deniers, claiming that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump, even though all reliable evidence indicates that it was not. Uh, and those forces were defeated in the places where they were fought. Now, there are plenty of election deniers who have been elected or reelected to office. Uh, plenty of people in Congress, for example, who still make the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen. But if you look at governor's races, secretary of state races and swing states, where having an election denier in power really can make a difference in terms of whether a future election could be subverted, uh, then I think the fact that in 2022, all of those uh, people lost their races, that, that's really significant because it shows you can create enough of a cross-partisan coalition committed to democracy that people could put aside their usual differences on you know, normal politics on issues of immigration or abortion or taxes or, or whatever, and agree that we at least need to have people committed to free and fair elections running our elections. Let's turn to your book. Let's turn to cheap speech. And first, why don't we define it? What is cheap speech? So the term is not mine. The term comes uh, from uh, a, a, a law review article that was written in uh, the 1990s by a UCLA colleague of mine named Eugene Volokh. He was writing as the internet era was just getting started. And he was talking about how changes in technology were going to make the transmission of information much easier. The things that we all take for granted now, like Spotify and Netflix and, 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 and uh, social media websites and all of this. And, he thought this was going to be a very good development because it was going to take the kind of difficulty that people had sharing their speech and uh, making it uh, much cheaper and easier. So, for example, if you read something in the uh, New York Times that you didn't like in 1992, uh, you could write a letter to the editor. If you were extremely lucky, they might publish it and some people might see it. Uh, you could stand on a street corner, uh, you could publish your own flyers, but you really couldn't get the message out today. You know, it is so easy to spread your, your ideas, anyone, for free, essentially, as long as you have an internet connection. And um, it's very democratizing. And uh, Eugene asked whether democracy would continue to function while the intermediaries that we relied upon in the past, like newspapers to help us curate content, would, would be undermined. And so he meant cheap speech in a very positive way. I think it's a, it, it's a very mixed uh, thing, what's happened. And I mean cheap speech in two ways. One way is the way he means it, cheap that is inexpensive to produce and disseminate. But uh, we also have developed a system, thanks to the changing economics of information and journalism and technology, where lower valued speech, is prioritized over higher value speech for, you know, for a few different reasons. Number one, it's really expensive to produce quality information. Think about investigative journalism. You, know, you have to employ journalists and it's a lot of expenses. It takes time. It takes a lot of effort. But you can make a slick looking website that produces fake news very inexpensive. And the more sensational and outrageous it is, the better off uh, you're going to be in terms of getting people to look at your content. And so just speaking very generally, we have a system that prioritizes lower valued speech over higher valued speech. And that has caused lots of problems for democracy. The one that I focus on in the book is the problem that uh, people need good, reliable information to make election related decisions, both to know if the election system is being fairly run, the, the issue we just talked about, but also to know who's telling the truth about facts in the world. You know. Did Donald Trump do a good job handling COVID or not? Uh, you know, is is Russia uh, justified in invading Ukraine? Um, how much immigration, illegal immigration, is coming in from the southern border? Right, those kind of issues. We need reliable information in order to be able to make choices consistent with our values and our interests. That's a lot harder to do when, especially local journalism, has been decimated by the changing technology. You don't have the same economic model to support that. And that just makes it a lot harder for people to know what they can believe and what they can't. And with changing technology that's coming, 
You've heard about this chat GPT program and deepfakes. These things are uh, going to make it harder and harder for people to know what's true. That's going to lead some people to accept false statements as true. It's going to lead many more people to just think they can't believe anything. And that itself is a problem. No, it was a line from uh, it was a line from the acclaimed TV series Chernobyl. The point of, and I'm not going to get the quote right, but the sentiment is clear. The point of this information is not to get you to believe it. It's to get you to believe nothing. And yeah. You talk about local journalism a lot in what you said, and it makes me think about, I saw just recently also, one of the same places I see you, that the election of George Santos is in, in some respects uh, a, a, an, an outgrowth of the uh, failure of local media, right? That, that not having, you know, not having local journalists who can cover congressional races, right? Uh, and who can cover more local races means that somebody can kind of make up anything about their background and who's yes. going to say otherwise. Uh, any other examples that you see? And I, and I don't know that we have to belabor this too much, but you might have, uh, you might have other examples of cheap speech that uh, would either blow people's hair back or that they should be aware of or might open their eyes in a slightly different way. I mean, I don't think we need to convince anybody that we've got an information challenge, right? I think everybody knows we have an information challenge. Understanding the texture of that from your vantage point and, and any kind of salient elements of it that might miss our view, that could be interesting. What about the kind of misinformation, cheap speech era do you think people might be missing? Well, I mean, one point which we just talked about that deserves emphasis is this idea about uh, what it means when people can't trust anything, right? So, right, the George uh, uh, Santos story is one of journalism not, and in fact, we know that local journalists at a, a local newspaper did discover a lot of this, but you know, it didn't work its way up the journalistic food chain. Is that a consequence of cheap speech or not? I, you know, I don't know, but but that shows you, you know, presumably we'd say if voters had gotten accurate information, they would have made a different choice. Maybe so, maybe not. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book is what professors. Um, Chesney and Citron call the liar's dividend. Uh, so when Donald Trump says, you know, that wasn't me on the Access Hollywood video, uh, in an era of cheap speech, it's easy for people to say, well, maybe it wasn't him. I, I just saw a tweet uh, last night that um, I can't remember which, which um, technology company is able to create little three second snippets of your voice to make it sound like you're saying something, right? So once we can't believe our own eyes and ears, how are we gonna be able to make informed choices, right? So you see a video of what appears to be Joe Biden having a heart attack, you know, the day before uh, election day in 2024. Is it real, is it not real? You know, these kinds of things are going to create new challenges for us. How are we going to make decisions when we don't know uh, who to trust? That is almost as bad as the problem of being taken in by false information. And I'm reminded of the cocktail party line, you know, at some point every every discussion, you know, gets to Hitler, but the, uh, I I think of Ayn Rand and I think of the study of totalitarian regimes, which actually I studied uh, during a summer at, at your university at UCLA. Uh, and the uh, and one of the takeaways was that when Hitler lied, even when his lies were exposed, it didn't disturb his followers because that wasn't the point anyway. That it, in fact, it it, it even it gave them greater enthusiasm because it demonstrated that Hitler could put one over on the mainstream forces that were trying to stop him. That the that, that when when truth is merely a weapon in an information war and a weapon to be defeated in an information war, and I use the term information war on purpose, uh, then that's that's the scary time we're in. So what's the new ground? What prompted you to write the book? What why did you say, listen, I gotta I gotta put some words on paper here? Well, I think that 
the changes in technology make it easier for this to happen and exponentially easier. And the collapse of the market for journalism as a counterweight really uh, makes a huge difference in people's daily lives and what information they can get and can rely upon. But also at the same time that these technology changes are going on, the United States Supreme Court is still stuck in a, a different era in thinking about the First Amendment. And in fact, the, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court might lead it to make First Amendment rulings that are exactly wrong and could, could in fact exacerbate our problems. I can give some examples. So uh, one of the things I suggest in the book is that uh, deep fakes, right? These are uh, using AI to create videos that would make someone look like they're saying or doing something that they're not actually doing. You know, fake, fake, fake news, but through audio or video. Uh, one of the suggestions I make to deal with deep fakes uh, is a requirement that social media companies label all altered media as altered. I wouldn't have to say it's bad, it wouldn't, but just say it's altered, whether it's altered for parody's sake or it's altered for, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to manipulate people or to make money, it would be labeled. There's a pretty good chance that at least some of the justices on the Supreme Court would find that unconstitutional, a violation of the First Amendment, or even a requirement that people who are paying for um, the use of bots and other technologies to try to influence people's opinions about elections, disclosing the spending might be found to be unconstitutional. If so, for example, you know, on all of the um, social media posts, there has to be a paid-for description, just like we see on TV. Yet. Supreme Court might say that's unconstitutional, and yet, which all of that sounds very kind of deregulatory. Um, the view of the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, two of the more conservative justices on a conservative Supreme Court, and Justice Alito, uh, have suggested that maybe laws that Florida and Texas have passed that would require social media companies to keep on their platforms speech they don't want from politicians who might undermine election integrity or who might even threaten election violence, that, that it does not violate the First Amendment for a state to force a social media company to carry, say, Donald Trump's speech. So I think part of the reason I was interested in writing this book was to make a case to the courts and to the legal system generally that in this new technological era, we might need to rethink some free speech doctrine because we have to have a country that's committed to both robust and uninhibited free speech about elections and politics, but also to free and fair elections. And sometimes those things come into conflict. We're here with Rick Hassan. We're talking about his new book, Cheap Speech, about the new era, the era we're in now, where speech is cheap and therefore so is lying. And the gatekeepers to block that lying are fewer or at least fewer in as a matter of ratio. And we might even have a Supreme Court that is not going to be a gatekeeper and might even uh, put significant hands on thumbs on the scales of justice to allow for promoting of, of dishonest speech that might even promote oligarchy. Anything else, Rick, that we need to go to understand the problem? I want to get to the solution a little bit, but to help people really understand the problem. Here's one. You said the very outset, nearly the very outset, that we need a cross-partisan, a transpartisan coalition that is pro-democracy. The democracy ain't going to work if it's struggling between 49 and 51 percent, right, in terms of the basic idea, right? We need, we need something, in my estimation, well over two-thirds to be strongly in favor of democracy for democracy to work. I'd be interested actually in your percentage. You think it's be 90%? What percentage of the population needs to believe in democracy or democracy to function? Who are the uh, who are the cross-partisan allies that people should be following out there? Who are folks out there who are really trying to tend to the garden of our system itself? 
Well, there are a number of people. Some of them are on the advisory board of the Safeguard Democracy Project. People like uh, Judge Michael Luddick, who was one of the, he's a, a very conservative former judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit who uh, advised Mike Pence that he couldn't unilaterally throw the election uh, for Trump. The Sarah Longwell, who publishes The Bulwark and who does those uh, pretty famous focus groups that are uh, looking at what Republican voters think. Uh, there are, you know, I would say that that bulwark crowd is, is very important. You don't need to get everybody on board, but, you know, in a closely divided society, if um, you get just some Republicans who reject the big lie, then that can have a huge difference. And you can see that, for example, in the failure of Carrie Lake to get elected in Arizona. Didn't take all the Republicans defecting from someone who was, who really made her, her campaign was about uh, the election lie. Um, but there was enough. I do want to go back to your question about, you know, what are the other problems? I, I want to um, emphasize that misinformation, disinformation is not the only problem caused to our election process by the cheap speech error. Let me, let me mention another one, which is that, the cheap speech era has changed how people raise money for office. And this has created the conditions where demagogues can have an independent base of support. So think about what happened recently in the House as uh, Kevin McCarthy was trying to get enough votes for um, his... Uh, Speakership. If you're Matt Gates or you're Marjorie Taylor Greene, you don't have to depend upon Kevin McCarthy in the way that foot soldiers in the House you had to rely on House leadership from their party in the past. Right in the past, the leaders would raise the big money. They'd go to, you know business interests and others, and they, they'd raise the money and then they'd dole it out and they would they would help to keep people in office. One of the things they would do is give you a plum assignment. So if you're from Iowa and you get on the agriculture committee, that's a big deal, right? So there are things you could do to, to, to boost people. Now, today, Matt Gates is sending out tweets and emails in the middle of his fight with Kevin McCarthy, fundraising. He's an independent agent, right? And, and this is true on the left as well. AOC does not need to listen to what Nancy Pelosi has to say. And so when candidates can be free agents and they don't have to belong to a political party, the political parties too are undermined, right? And so one of the big problems in the cheap speech era is the undermining of lots of different institutions that we rely upon for truth-telling. And um, that we rely upon, I would say, in the case of political parties, for moderation. So if you're a big tent party, you've got just two parties, Democrats, Republicans, leadership's going to have to be more centrist within their party. And they can kind of rein in the more extreme elements in their party through the things that leaders could do in the past, which is often raising funds and campaigning. That's so much less important now. So it creates the pathway for demagoguery uh, in a way that uh, didn't happen in the past. And, and that can create conditions for political instability, as we saw not just with January 6th, but we just saw with that speaker's uh, contest. Other drivers so of the challenge. So we're talking about manifestations of it, right? Manifestations, meaning that the... And I don't know if gatekeeper is the right word, but but filters or yeah, in fact, what is the right word? What, what, what in, are we I call them inter intermediaries. Intermediaries. Intermediaries that we rely upon for truth-telling and for stability. So, you know, you think about Donald Trump's attacks uh, on institutions when he was uh, running for office and when he was in office. Who did he go after? the free press, right? The, the true enemy of the people, the FBI, the judiciary, 
the opposition party, his own party, right? These are the institutions that we rely upon to kind of help us tell the truth and keep social order. When they're all being undermined, you're in a pretty tough spot. And I'll add a little bit the uh, and ask you to comment either way or, or not at your choice, that there is now potentially an inverse relationship between uh, the accuracy of one's message, or at least it's, uh, to say it another way, there is a bonus, there's a benefit to saying something that is very different, uh, very distinct, uh, even uh, certainly charged, uh, even controversial. There's a benefit for that in the uh, in the social media world because that can that can set you apart from the rest and earn you followers. And then when it comes time to name who the intermediaries are, who can be trusted, who actually has the power and ability to communicate, it's the folks who've earned the most clicks. And those clicks might have been earned not by their truth telling, in fact, maybe likely not with the depth of their message, but with how much sugar it gave on the lips when you ate it, how much, how different it was from other messages. And, and there can be overlap between difference and inaccuracy, right? Difference doesn't necessarily mean inaccuracy, but if you say something, if you're Alex Jones, you say something real weird, the only person who's saying that uh, that Sandy Hook was a conspiracy, and then you can gather 9% of the population. 9% is a lot. And then when somebody looks at your followers, well, this person has more followers than that follower than that person. Maybe, maybe Alex Jones is more reliable. Maybe that's the social proof that I should rely upon. Uh, are there any other drivers, either manifestations of the problem or drivers of the problem? We talked about the reduction in local media. Uh, we talked about the uh, the lack of or the re reduced power by in in reliable intermediaries. We talked, of course, about the ultimate driver, uh, one of the ultimate drivers, which is uh, which is the technology itself. Any other drivers of kind of where we're at? Well, I don't know that I call this a driver so much as a kind of um, overlapping problem, which is that of political polarization. Political polarization preceded the rise of this cheap speech era. Already in the 1990s, we were pretty polarized. You know, in the 1950s, the American Political Science Association issued a report uh, called something like Towards a Responsible Two-Party System, where their main complaint was that the Democrats and Republicans were too much alike to each other. You know, what's that, Kurt? Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. So... It's, you know, today, the most conservative Democrat in the Senate, Joe Manchin, is more liberal uh, than the most liberal Republican in the Senate, Susan Collins, right? We have a complete separation of the political parties. And what that means is that um, because we're closely divided and deeply polarized, elections really... <laughs> can seem existential. And when you map that on top of this new information environment where there's lots of room for manipulation and where there's lots of room for demagoguery, it just creates bad conditions for the stability of democracy. And you know, the United States is maybe one of the worst uh, suffering this problem, but it's not as though these problems don't exist in other countries. I mean, just look at what happened in Brazil uh, Brazil, that storming of the uh, government offices that we saw uh, following the uh, loss by Bolsonaro was driven by the same kinds of false uh, claims. In fact, the New York Times read an article, uh, you know, it was called something like, what, what's driving, what, what drove the, the uprising in Brazil? Mass delusion. Right, so this belief that the election processes are being manipulated. Uh, so this is not just a U.S. problem, but it can especially be a problem in times of polarization. Uh, but you know, just to think about how the how different our times are. Imagine if we had the same polarized politics of today, but the technology of the 1950s. So we know Donald Trump went to Twitter about 400 times between November 3rd and November 23rd to claim the election was stolen. If we lived in the old times when there were just channels two, four, and seven and a couple of national newspapers and a couple of local newspapers in each place, 
you would not have had the repetition. You would not have had the ability, if you're a demagogue, to be able to constantly go back to um, the people directly and spew your lies. And so it makes it harder. It doesn't make it impossible. You've given some historical examples where the big lies have, have perpetuated and, and caused great societal problems, but, but it, uh, it makes it much easier to be able to do that. You talk about polarization. I'm still hunting for another word because polls suggest a symmetry that I think is inaccurate, but I haven't come up with a better word. I just keep asking people smarter than I am to help me come up with one or to propose it to others because uh, I don't think we're in a spherical world that has that has, you know, sort of a, a post with a flag on it on each side. But uh, but there is no question there's been a big sort among the political parties and the uh, and and it's. And it's decidedly. Uh, you know, you, you no longer have the truly conservative Democrats and truly conservative liberals, uh, tr truly liberal Republicans, as, as we did in the two party system, then I think faces a much greater challenge and a much stronger counter argument uh, than it's ever than it's ever faced. And I mentioned off script George Santos and you said, yeah, we we think that maybe voters would have voted differently had they known. Uh, almost certainly some of them would. Would it have changed the outcome of the election? We can only we can only guess because the truth of the matter is you ask somebody who is truly concerned about the outcome of an election and they think that the world truly, you know, that, that there's a risk of melting the planet uh, and or they're concerned about the preservation, the life and soul of an unborn child or desperately concerned about the uh, ability of a woman to to hold the sanctity of her own life, of her own body and make her own choices, and that these decisions and the, and the power to wield those decisions can feel much more important than whether somebody lied over their over their resume. And so that 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 division within our politics almost certainly does. If, if each of us are supposed to be the intermediaries, there are many intermediaries, many among us who are a little bit less motivated to hold potentially ideological allies accountable. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it, it's um, it's a difficult moment, and it would be a difficult moment even if we didn't have these these twin challenges. There's no question that uh, the whole problem is exacerbated by our structure of government. Right. So when the when the Constitution was created, it was seen that Congress and the presidency would be kind of rivals. Now, of course, it's the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, right? So it's not Congress trying to be a check on the president. It's Republicans trying to be a check on the Democratic president, Democrats trying to be a check on the Republican president. And so we have this kind of antiquated political system that overlays all of this. If we're going to follow the money, who probably look more manifestations, more consequences of the cheap speech era, the misinformation era, slightly different things, but overlapping and related Who's profiting? I mean, we know Newsmax, we know Chris Ruddy of Newsmax CEO admitted to the New York Times uh, that he didn't believe Trump's big lie, but he had to cover it to meet audience demand. This harkens our listeners to uh, uh, to the Johan Benkler's book, Network Propaganda, uh, the, the, the idea that we're within those filter bubbles and particularly the network propaganda that Newsmax is a part of has to feed the beast that is its network propaganda audience. Uh, Trump himself raised over $200 million. Uh, what else, if we're following the money, should we be tracking with respect to the big lie and with respect to misinformation generally? Who's winning out of this? Well, first of all, there's a lot of profit to be made off the big lie. So if you're Alex Jones or Steve Bannon, or Donald Trump, you know, Trump raised a lot of money uh, kind of for a political slush fund. You may remember during the period after the election when he was bringing a bunch of lawsuits that were unsuccessful, he raised money. If you looked at the fine print, only a small percentage of that money was actually going to Trump's um, legal bills. The most of it was going to a leadership pact that he was setting up, which he could use kind of as a political slush fund. Uh, Alex Jones makes millions off of these kind of lies. So we shouldn't discount the financial uh, side of this. 
there certainly is a financial benefit, but it's not just for money. It's also for political power, which of course is, is more difficult. And um, there was a push right after January 6th to get corporations not to give money to those members of Congress who voted to reject the electoral college votes of Arizona or Pennsylvania. You know, that happened, if you remember, the Arizona vote was before the insurrection, the Pennsylvania vote was after on January 7th. Um, for a little while, there was some corporate resistance, but, you know, Republicans now control the House. There, there was no way that corporations were going to indefinitely stop giving money to them. And so uh, they're back. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see the pressure, the cross pressures on corporate America. In part, uh, some of this comes from uh, our, our our entire system is just not set up to have to you know to, to deal with the kinds of pressures uh, that we're facing now. And yet, if you look at the Constitution, there's no easy way to get out of the box that we're in. It's not like we can easily amend the Constitution and, and change the structures of government. So uh, we can't, for example, impose um, campaign finance reform that might meaningfully limit money in politics, at least as long as we have the current Supreme Court, whose views of the First Amendment leads it to conclude that most campaign finance rules are, are uh, unconstitutional. So we're kind of in this box, you know. We we allow uh, the funding of demagogues. We allow, and we've seen millions of dollars being poured into groups that are supporting election lies. Now, of course, there's lots of money on the other side. The those election deniers were vastly outspent by people who are quite concerned about our democracy. So so that's a good thing. I mean, if you're going to have a kind of monetary free for all, it's good that. The side that is pro-democracy is winning, but it's still not the kind of system you would necessarily design if you were starting from scratch today and trying to have a functioning democracy. So how do we break out of that box? Because I agree, you know, betting that capital will always be on the side of democracy is a, is a risky bet. Uh, I, I'd make that bet. It's capital I control. Would make that bet uh, would, would be on that side, but not everybody would be on the same side. So how do we break out of that box? Let's move to solutions or proposals. Where do you want to start? You want to start with the honest, honest ads act and explain what the heck that is, or where do you want to start with respect to solutions? So uh, I said earlier that the problem is how do you cr create rules that both allow for free and robust speech protected by the First Amendment which we'd want, even if the First Amendment didn't exist, we'd want free and robust election speech because that's what helps people make decisions about how they should vote, uh, but also a commitment to free and fair elections. And so there's kind of a narrow set of legal tools that we could use that could help. You know, one of the things that people have said about my book, Cheap Speech, is, you know, like there's no silver bullet, you know, where's the answers? And unfortunately, it's a multifaceted problem and it's one where uh, the solutions are hard to come by. So, so I, you know, I'll, I'll rattle off some. Uh, I've mentioned one already, which is better disclosure. So we could have better disclosure of online ads. We could have disclosure when audio uh, or video is being manipulated, that the deep fakes labeling. Um, we could have a law that makes it uh, a crime to lie about when, where, or how people vote. We've had some of that, you know, false information about that people, for example, could vote by text or social media hashtag. Someone's being prosecuted for doing that right now in the 2016 election. So we could have those kinds of changes. But I think probably it would be unconstitutional and probably it would be a bad idea to make it a crime to lie about a, a prior election being stolen. And that's where Donald Trump has done much of his damage, lying about the last election being stolen. It creates really difficult free speech problems to, to do that, in part because how is that rule going to work? What's going to happen if there actually is a stolen election and the people who are in charge of deciding whether or not you're um, 
going to be prosecuted under this law are, are the ones who are, are doing the stealing. So I worry about speech restrictions, about someone making a claim about the past, uh, whether or not you know an election was fair or was not. So much of what we have to do, and the last part of cheap speech is dedicated to this, is think about solutions beyond changes in law that could help to assure that we continue to have um, access to good information to be able to make decisions. So things like bolstering local journalism. Uh, the, the model, the philanthropic model seems to be what works, whether it's you're talking about NPR or you're talking about um, ProPublica or some of these state-based uh, journalistic outfits like the Nevada Independent or the Texas Tribune. We need subsidies for local journalism. I also think that journalists should develop a code of ethics where if you comply with certain rules for how journalists normally do their job, for example, you have to get verification from two people um, before uh, two sources before you will you know print something in a uh, in a story. Uh, you give always give someone who's being written about in a story a chance to respond. And then those the those entities that follow these journalistic norms could get a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval. And then that seal of approval, maybe it's a green check mark, can appear on social media sites. So people could say, oh, it's the LA Times. They're reliable. They get the check mark. Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. They're all going to make mistakes. But things like that that could help to signal to voters what's reliable and what's not reliable. You know, we have to build up institutions like using bar associations to go after uh, lawyers who lie about elections being stolen and potentially have them face sanctions for it. So there are different mechanisms that we can rely upon beyond passing, having Congress pass statutes to try to deal with these kinds of problems. Local journalism, civil society, generally, what are the platforms? Because part of the challenge right now, all of this is also alongside of this discussion is uh, Elon Musk's uh, takeover of Twitter and where a blue check mark used to mean you were famous and that you were actually the person who was famous. Now blue check mark means you give them some money. And I think that I think their argument for that is, well, then we can check to make sure you are who you say you are. Uh, so that could be a different thing. You're suggesting a check mark, different color, uh, that would mean this person actually abides by uh, basic journalistic, you know, fundamental. I mean, basic, not as simple or easy, but fundamental uh, journalistic standards. Where would that go? Or another way to say it is, where are the town squares we should be most uh, concerned about? It was always that rich people own newspapers. It's a mild exaggeration, but not necessarily oligarchs because you'd own a local newspaper, right? You'd own a radio station or a few radio stations. Then with deregulation of the media, you could own a bunch of radio stations. And then with consolidation, it's just a handful. Uh, now with social media, the the winners tend to be the, uh, the, the owner of that particular platform. What do we do about those? What do we do about those platforms themselves? Where would that green check check mark even go? Yeah. So I mean, one thing is, uh, if the platforms are too big, uh, antitrust law might be a solution. Now you're not going to break up Facebook itself, right? Facebook is, a, and there's net network benefits of Facebook, right? So you want to see where your high school friends are, you go to Facebook, right? Um, but Facebook also owns Instagram. People and our age, Rick, people our age, yeah. Professor, yeah. we yeah. go to Facebook yes. to find yes. out where our school friends are. My yes. my nephew does not go to Facebook to find out where his friends are. Sure. Because... No, say your old high school friends that you've lost touch with. I don't mean yeah, to. Um, uh, they don't necessarily have to own Instagram and WhatsApp. And, you know, also Facebook you know, is on the decline, right? That's what your parents use yeah, or your point. grandparents yeah. use. So things are changing. Uh, so to the extent that we're worried any one platform is too powerful, antitrust is a potential solution. I also favor regulation that would require transparency from these platforms. So researchers can figure out, for example, is the way that Facebook's algorithm working, making it easier for people to absorb election lies and, and become radicalized. We need to be give researchers access. I don't think you can have laws or and I don't think you should have laws that regulate content on these platforms, political speech, because it just becomes too dangerous when you think about who's going to be the regulator. Just think about the president that you 
or a presidential candidate that you fear the most, and imagine that she or he gets to appoint the social media czar. Right, that would be a very scary prospect. So, uh, so I worry about that. Uh, uh, Elon Musk, I think, has done some terrible things on Twitter, but it's also made Twitter somewhat less relevant. And it's not clear to me that Twitter is going to be around in a year, at least not in the form that it's been, because advertisers are fleeing. Uh, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on with engagement, but there's reason to think that uh, these situations are more fluid than we thought. And in 10 years, it's hard to know how we're going to be communicating. Um, it's a very dynamic area. And so rather than think about platforms themselves, we need to think about, you know, whatever the technology is that people are using to communicate, how are we going to continue to assure that people have access to reliable information so they can make election choices, so they can have confidence to know when an election is being fairly run and, and that it's been fairly run. So I wouldn't separate those things. I think that your point of, oh, well, don't fear a given platform too much because it might decline is a fair point. That is, that's different from saying uh, we shouldn't worry about them because still, I still have the question, where does that green check mark go? Right? Like if you're going to, if you're going to say, okay, uh, the trusted intermediaries, the reliable intermediaries, they get, we got to identify who they are. Well, who's the we and how's that going to happen? Another way, uh, and, and that's not, that's not me complaining. It's an actual question. Another way to put an overlapping question, another way to say another overlapping question is how can pro-democracy folks take advantage of the fluidity you're talking about? Uh, another way of asking an overlapping question is where are you going? Where are you wanting people to go to, uh, to follow from? Is it back to the blogosphere, not rely on given social media platforms, the Facebooks, Instagrams, uh, TikToks, and Twitters of the world, but go straight to, you know, election law blog. Uh, where are you, where do you see for the people who read your book and say, yes, let's do it. Where do you want them to go? How do we form the internet we want? So I don't think any of us have control to form the internet that we want, uh, but there are ways to nudge people to make better choices. So I write in cheap speech about how there was a moment that um, after January 6th, when Facebook tweaked its algorithm so that rather than getting more incendiary political content, people were getting more reliable content. Um, you know, they were getting uh, NPR and USA Today, you know, reliable sources of news. And some of the Facebook employees begged Mark Zuckerberg to keep it, but no, he had to go back because it didn't make as much money. Uh, so one of the things I suggest is that people who work for these platforms have some leverage and we as customers have some leverage. And if enough people act in a way to encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior, that could help. So, uh, you know, people who are, leaving Twitter or using it less or sending a market signal. And if enough of us care about this issue, that might make a difference in terms of how these things work. Or we might have to build alternative structures. So there are other social media platforms that are in the works. Uh, I've just signed up with Mastodon. I've uh, uh, signed up with Post. Um, uh, I, I don't know if these things are going to pan out, but um, there, there is enough dissatisfaction with the status quo that I think other forms of communication have an opening right now. I, and I do think it's a big part of it, right? I think it is people voting with their feet towards platforms that reward accuracy and towards platforms that are pro-democracy and pro-civil society. I think that's a, it's a critical, critical part. I think of the analogy uh, that I was thinking about was the healthy food movement. What do you do when uh, people at Facebook are saying, oh, no, make sure you give people some food that's actual food. Doesn't have to be broccoli, but it's actual food. And Mark Zuckerberg switches to that and starts giving people real food and then switches back and says, no, people actually really like sugar. <laughs> they really like fat. They really like salt. That's what people really like. I like fat, salt, and sugar too. I like stuff that confirms my biases. I like stuff that entertains me. I mean, you know, I, and, and, you know, and I'm a pretty nerdy guy. And the healthy food movement was like, okay, well, what if we created health food stores and 
you know, they they still didn't beat Safeway, right? But eventually they started doing a little bit. I think there are lessons to be learned from the healthy food movement. And it's still got a long way to go to try to move, right? Only now, only, only in the last several years do we have in states like Oregon, where there are requirements to post uh, kind of caloric information directly on the screen at a fast food joint, right? Uh, but the healthy movement, healthy food movement relied upon healthy food eaters, relied on customers. So folks flocking to the Mastodon's post.news and, ba- and bouncing them if they are, um, uh, if, if they uh, depart from the principles that drew people there in the first place. It is, of course, that, that also begs the question about publicly funded media, right? You mentioned NPR, uh, that that this is, I mean, isn't isn't the nonprofit model you mentioned, uh, ProPublica, you mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned the Omidyar, ne- Omidyar Networks, but you mentioned the Texas Tribune, uh, that uh, what can be done to prop those up? What can be done is people just going there, people starting them, us doing fundraising tours to try to find uh, larger checks to launch them. Uh, so first, let me just agree with the point of people need to flock there. Anything else you want to plug where people should be flocking to or anything you want to suggest about we can encourage more flocking? Well, one of the problems is that um, party operatives and even even the Russian government have been swooping in in local news areas where they're where the local newspaper has died or is uh, is on life support. And they've come up with propaganda that has a little local news and a lot of propaganda. And so it's important. I mean, it's very trite to say civics education matters, but it does for both children and for adults. It's very important for people to understand that where they're getting their content might, you know, might not be looking out for their best interest. And so part of this local news problem is not just propping up the, the good local news sources, but also making sure that people have the tools to be able to, to discern. You know, Wikipedia, one of the things that I like when it first started, people would scoff at it because it's, you know, it's, um, you know, it can be changed. It's decentralized. That model has worked. And so it is possible to create reliable sources uh, and to give people the tools to be able to figure out what those reliable sources are. And that's, I think, a big part of what we need to be helping people to do going forward. We previously had uh, Laura Edelson from NYU Cybersecurity and Democracy on the podcast to talk about the cease and desist letters uh, they got from Facebook against the ad observatory of political Facebook ads that were being compiled by Laura and her team. What grade would you give Facebook in attempting to prevent disinformation in the 2020 campaign versus their efforts in the 2016 campaign? They get any better? Well, some things were better. Um, some things didn't work well, like labeling didn't seem it actually made la- labeling uh, information the way Facebook did it in particular might have suggested that Facebook was endorsing those posts rather than um uh saying that they were not trustworthy uh facebook and twitter also overreacted to the hunter biden laptop story and i think this is an important thing to mention too um that was a story that ran the new york post it wasn't clear whether or not the laptop was genuine or not at the time but it wasn't you know people thought maybe it was a russian disinformation uh, campaign but it wasn't but Facebook and Twitter were so burned by 2016 that they overreacted and demoted content that uh, from the New York Post with that story. So I don't think that Facebook did particularly well in in uh, in 2020. Uh, they were at least cognizant of what was going on and tried to do some things. Uh, I think after 2020, they actually did worse. I mean, it was good that they removed Trump from Twitter, but both, uh, I'm sorry, removed Trump from Facebook, but both Facebook and Twitter have uh, back been engaged in backsliding. Uh, even before Elon Musk took over Twitter, uh, Twitter announced it was no longer going to police uh, false content related to the 2020 election anymore. Uh we know that Elon Musk restored Donald Trump to Twitter, although he hasn't taken advantage of it yet. 
Facebook is going to do so any day, is my prediction. They were given a two-year term to suspend Trump, and they have to decide what to do about him. And it's, uh, you know, it seems pretty likely that they're going to bring him back. So uh, if they've learned lessons from what happened in 2016 and 2020, I don't know that they've learned enough uh, that they're going to do the right thing in the future. For people voting with their feet, voting with their clicks, uh, or for people who are trying to form new networks, or for people who are trying to give uh, green check, check marks to the right users of the right platforms, what effort should be taken by social media companies to limit disinformation, protect democracy? What are your what are some of the hallmarks? You, you, you don't want editing of content, right? You want to and you want to be really careful about banning content. So what should happen? Well, we say I don't want editing of content. Every every um, social media platform does some curating of content. Otherwise, all we'd have is porn and spam and terrible things in our feeds that nobody wants. Yeah, there's you know there's an algorithm that's deciding what we see, and that's removing content. You know, we want it. You know, even though the First Amendment allows it, I don't want to see hate speech all over my uh, social media feed. I would I would be uh, it would be a very unpleasant experience, right? So there's got to be curating. And so, you know, I don't think it's anything that's magical. You need to promote reliable content uh, and demote content that is not reliable. And uh, I think that there should be a very big thumb on the scale against removing politicians from platforms. But if they advocate violence or constantly denigrate the integrity of the election system for no good reason, then they deserve to be deplatformed. Just like I don't have the right to go on Fox News just because I want to. I'd love to go on Fox News and tell them what I think. I have no right to go on there. Donald Trump doesn't have the right to be on any platform. And so I think that these companies should act as responsible corporations and do what they can, do their part to assure that we have a functioning democracy. And that means robust speech for sure, elevating reliable content, demoting unreliable content, and in extreme cases, removing content of people who are um, creating conditions where our very democracy is under threat because people don't believe that we have free and fair elections even when we do. I want to go back to the courts. You brought up the Supreme Court. You work at a law school, a professor of law at UCLA Law School. And when you brought the courts up before, I only slightly took the bait. And what is the pro-democracy view of the ambit of free speech in the 21st century, right? If it's if if the uh, current Supreme Court view is that purchase speech is the exact same thing as any other kind of speech, and that the uh, and and there's kind of an extreme expansion of what free speech can do, but at the same time it'll regulate certain require certain speech about speech regulate whether it's going to be required to disclose information what what are the who are the free speech theologians that people should be following and listening to what are the what are the tenets of a sensible free speech if somebody pounds it i'm for free speech and and somebody who's concerned about what they mean by that doesn't want to say well i'm not well of course they're for free speech they're for blank right my wife would say the the old saw well yeah but you can't cry fire in a crowded theater what are the other principles that should help inform our understanding of free speech for people who care about democracy as well as speech. So the idea of not yelling fire in a crowded theater, that's the idea that the First Amendment requires balancing, that freedom of speech, just like other freedoms, are not absolute. And so how do you achieve that balance? And the court has always engaged in the kind of balancing of these uh, interests. I just think they've got the balance off especially when it comes to money and politics. I wrote a book back in uh, 2016 called Plutocrats United. It's a critique of Citizens United. And uh, where I think the court went wrong there is not accepting political equality as a legitimate reason to limit money in politics. You and I might have the same interest in politics, same intensity of belief, but you're a billionaire and I'm poor you're gonna have much more influence over both who's elected and what public policy looks like. So we need a rethinking of 
those kinds of issues of about money and politics. Uh, but as the cheap speech book uh, shows, it's not just about the amount of money. It's about disclosure so that voters can get reliable information. And it's about you know finding that balance. Again, it's all about balance. Finding that balance between what um, can be done to assure that we can have robust political debate, but also so that we don't have our democracy destroy itself. Another famous expression is, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. We should not read the First Amendment so that it has the tools for our own destruction built into it. There's got to be some limits on undermining democracy in such a way that it that it th threatens the, the whole structure of, of the of the uh, democratic process in the United States. Before we wrap, what's giving you hope? Well, 2022 definitely gave me some hope because I think that we could have been in a much worse situation looking at the 2024 elections if we would have had these election deniers in place to be running our elections in, in, in these swing states. There's still a great danger. I think that the election denial movement is catching on in a way that is, is even worse than I expected. But there's been a counter movement. People are activated. People no longer take our democracy for granted. If I said peaceful transition of power, a lot of people would understand what I mean about that, where they didn't before 2020. I think the January 6th Commission did a very good job in getting the public's attention to these issues. So I do think that there are things that have been done that uh, show that we at least have a fighting chance for our democracy going forward. Well, Professor Rick Hassan of UCLA, the book is Cheap Speech. Thank you so much for spending our time. Thanks for your work. In, and thank you so much for being one of the leading democracy nerds in the firmament. We really appreciate you, and we really appreciate the time. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it, too. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, democracy. Democracy.